0: Well, good morning again. Today we're going to be actually continuing our conversation from last week about what the word Emmanuel means. Um, and if you weren't here last week, you're, don't worry—you're not starting in a huge deficit. and You're going to be totally confused. Um, we're going to be talking about the same thing in a very, in a very different way. So, uh, and much like last week, it, um, I'm going to be sort of all over the place. And so, if you miss a verse, we're not going to just be parking somewhere and, and going through it diligently. If you miss a verse, just just ask me about it. Um, yeah, just ask me about it, and I'll give you a copy of the sermon, and we'll we'll talk about it afterwards. But let's pray. Let's seek the Lord's favor together. Right. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for Christmas and for Epiphany and for the coming of Christ into the world. Uh, we know, Father, that uh, Christmas time is uh, sometimes very difficult for many of us. Sometimes it's very joyous for many of us. Um. But for everyone, it quickly comes and it quickly goes, and we move on to uh, even what the church calendar calls common time. I pray, Father, that uh, you let us linger uh, at, the, at the manger a little longer. Let us think a little more deeply about who our Savior is, what his name means, and what he means for each of us, for his people, for this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, uh, I thought I knew a lot, quite a lot about this word, Emmanuel. Uh, turns out I don't know everything. Um, it's not a shock to my wife. <laughs> Just kidding. There's a, a second time that it's used in the book of Isaiah, and I would like to read this for you. Okay, I'm going to read this. this. is We all know the first time, right? To, us, to a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. We're, we're very, very familiar with that. But later on in Isaiah, they... They, bring, they mention Emmanuel again. And just listen to the context of this. This is Isaiah chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. And it will sweep on into Judah. There's a river that will rise, he's saying, and it will sweep on into the land of Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the Neck, And its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. The God with us is the God for us. This sounds an awful lot like the flood to me. This sounds an awful lot like cleansing through the baptism of judgment to me. And so Emmanuel comes, and he does dwell with us over a land that's cleansed by the judgment of God. Okay, He's coming, and he's coming to destroy his enemies. And so we like Emmanuel. It's the cute little baby in the manger, right? And there's the, the presents all set out before him. Like I said last week, we love the trappings of Christmas and all the cuteness of it. But this Emmanuel is going to grow up and even if you're wearing armor, he's going to shatter it. If you stand against him, you're going to be crushed. And so Christmas, uh, as I was saying in the call this morning, Christmas is a declaration of war. But, but what's key to understand is uh, against who, against what. It's a declaration of war. What kind of war? How is the war fought? Who wins? How is it conducted? What is our role in it? Now, this is very much why during the Christmas time, Christmas passages, we have verses that talk a lot about uh, Christ coming to overcome our enemies. And in what the verses we had read for us this morning, in Luke chapter 1, verses 70 through 71, it says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And so the coming of Christ is talked about very much in this dual aspect. His coming is a great blessing to many people and it is a great deal of terror to many people. Okay? He comes to separate. He comes to judge some of us and save some of us. And if you're not careful, like the, like the Jews weren't, it's very, very quickly you get confused about who he came to fight and how he came to fight them. This, the coming of God with us includes judgment and cleansing. It includes destruction. We are servants of Satan, fallen in Adam, until Jesus destroys his enemies who hold us in bondage. But who is Jesus coming into our midst to fight? Mm -hmm. Understanding this is crucial to understanding Jesus. John says at the outset of his gospel that Jesus came into his, his own, but his own did not know him. But the gospels are full of the most stirring anticipation for the Messiah. Everybody's waiting for him. And when he comes, they don't exactly rejoice. They kill him. They murder him. So if everyone is waiting for Emmanuel, why didn't they recognize him? Why didn't they know him to be the Emmanuel that they were so excited about? I believe it's largely because of who Jesus fought and how he fought them. Okay, the Messiah was not supposed to attack the Sanhedrin. He was supposed to strap on armor and mow down the centurions. That's what, that's what everyone was waiting for, right? Let's go get the Gentiles. His own people rejected Jesus because they didn't recognize him as the Messiah they needed. To the Jews, Jesus was against all the wrong people and for all the wrong people. This confused them greatly. Now, Peter Lightheart explains that there are two main reasons for this confusion. One reason is that Jesus is attacking the true enemy of Israel instead of the enemy that many of the Jews recognize as the enemy. Many of the Jews think the greatest problem for Israel is the Roman occupation. Many of the Jews think the greatest problem for Israel is the Roman occupation. Okay? They can get rid of the Romans. Everything will go all right. Everything will be good again. Jesus knows that the Romans are not the real problem. In the wilderness, Jesus confronts the real threat to Israel, the devil. And throughout his ministry, Jesus is at war with the devil and the demons who serve him. Casting out demons is one of Jesus' most common miracles. He comes to deliver Israel, but to deliver Israel from the real oppressor. He comes to free Israel from the slavery that started in the Garden of Eden, not the one that started in Pompeii. The reason Jesus was so maligned was his insistence on what the true Messiah had come to do in defiance of Israel's expectations. Their faulty expectations were a spiritual blindness to them, to the mission of God, and so is ours. Our faulty expectations of Jesus, who he is, what he's here to do, who he's here to fight, how he's here to fight them, is a spiritual blindness to all of us. We're all as confused as the Jews were. So if you read the title of the sermon, if you hear me talking about defeating our enemies and you're excited because you think I'm going to talk about with eloquence on the evils of Islam or the errors of the Democratic National Convention, or if I'm going to take pot shots at Pop-Tarts like Katy, Katy Perry, you're going to be sadly disappointed because that's not what I'm here to talk. I like taking pot shots at Pop-Tarts like Katy Perry, but that's not why we're here. <laughs> why was there such a huge disparity between the expectations of Israel and who Jesus actually was. Here's who they're waiting for, and here's who he is, and they couldn't be further apart. Why is there such a huge disparity between our expectations of who Jesus is and who he really is? Because a lot of times, even us, our expectations of who he is is over here, and who he actually is is way over here. Very different. As we see in Luke 171, Zacharias is declaring that the Father gave the Son to fight our enemies. And we all say yes and amen. The Messiah, Jesus, shows up to defeat the enemies of Israel, and instead of rejoicing, they murder him. Okay, like the prophets of old, John the Puritan, I like to call him a Puritan, he, it, it fits better, and Jesus declared war on Israel's sin and Israel's idols. Okay, the prophet John comes and Jesus comes and they declare war on Israel's sin and Israel's idols. Okay, just like the old prophets did. Okay, but the first century Jews worshipped the prophets of old. And Jesus liked to tell them that if they had come, the old prophets came now, you'd murder them all. And the Jews got very angry about that. And yet here are two prophets, just like the old prophets, and what do they do? They murder both of them. right? And, and we are just like this. We venerate Jesus, of course. We venerate the apostles. But if we think that if St. Paul came here to preach at us and we wouldn't stone him we have a problem, okay? If Jesus came here as an itinerant preacher and we invited him over for lunch, right? And then he does something Jesus-like and he shows up with that girl from work who sleeps around, right? Or your idiot brother-in-law or that bum that lives in the woods across the street who drinks too much, right? Imagine that. We like reading those stories, but imagine if Jesus came to your house for lunch and he came with people, you were confused about why they're there, and while he's there with them, he starts asking you questions about how you keep the law and your prayer life and what you've been watching on TV. I I, I, I shudder to think. I would say, well, Jesus, that was uh, actually I gotta go. So thanks for coming. <laughs> right? I mean, we love the Book of Corinthians, but that's a letter from St. Paul to a church about its very real problems. And if we received a letter like that from St. Paul, would we want to circulate it? Would we Would we want to send it down the road? To Emmanuel or Trinity or um, any number of churches, and have them read it out loud. Be like, you know, this really encouraged us. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, the names have not been changed. It's, you know, it's very embarrassing. We don't think we're Pharisees, and Pharisees never do. It's the problem with Pharisees; they never think they're the Pharisees. We like to mock the apostles and the Israelites for being so hard-hearted and being blind, but we are going to find out today, I hope, I hope, that we are far more like them than we ever care to admit. We're just as confused about who God's enemies are, but it's more to our shame because we have the spirit. We have the full revelation of the apostles. We have Jesus' plan. We have uh, the nature of the war spelled out for us, how he's fighting the war. It's all there in the New Testament. But we're just as petty... We're just as personal, carnal, and missionally flummoxed as the Israelites in Jesus' day. God is at war. He has drafted you into his army. You have not drafted him into yours. That's a hard truth. It's a hard truth to accept. You're fighting his war against his enemies his way. And as soon as you start enlisting him to fight your enemies your way, everything goes wrong. What we think we know about the enemies of God, like the Israelites, reveals what we really believe about the Messiah and his mission. That's really what's at the heart of this. We don't get him because of who he attacks in our own lives. We don't get where he's at war and how he's doing it, and so we're confused about him. And, and if we get this right, I think, what is he all about? Who is he here to attack? How is he going to attack them? What does uh, salvation from our enemies actually look like? When we start to put these things right, we start to get a clear image of who he is. It's much easier to follow him that way, okay? Now, to begin with, for purposes of our faith, I think it's important that we look at a central promise from the Old Testament, okay? Jesus came to save us from our enemies. There's no doubt about this. This is what he came to do, okay? And here's why. It's founded on the first promise to man after the fall that I talk about a lot, actually, in class and in sermons. Genesis 3.15, God promises a son who will defeat the dragon, It is continued through all the promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to everybody else. A greater man, a greater son, a greater prophet, a greater priest, a greater king, with all the power necessary, is going to rise up within Israel to rule over the nations as God's anointed. That's the clear expectation from the Old Testament. Everywhere Jesus goes, we see this deep anticipation and expectation of the Messiah anticipation deeply rooted in the scriptures and the traditions and the very identity of who Israel is, okay? Everyone knows it. We know it. They knew it. We see the Samaritan woman at the well, who is considered the lowest kind of person a Jew could possibly associate with. She herself can't believe that Jesus speaks to her, right? She's a Samaritan woman. What is the Jewish rabbi doing talking to me? And yet, what is she talking to him about? John 4.25 The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So even a non-Jew who can't even get into the temple knows that a Messiah is coming. It's pervading the culture in this area. Everyone is waiting desperately for this Emmanuel to come. Israel, too, knows that the Messiah is coming. Luke 3.15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John the Puritan whether he might be the Christ. So as soon as he comes on the scene and he starts talking the way he's talking, doing the things he's doing, they're like, is this him? Is this the Emmanuel? Everyone's very excited about it. We see part of the self-awareness of Israel was that God's anointed would come from within them, and he would rule over the nations. If you read the Gospels and Acts with these verses in mind, these examples in mind that I've mentioned, the books take on a very distinct, distinct anticipatory feel. Okay? Think about this next time you're reading through the Gospels and Acts. Everybody is just can't even stand it. They're waiting for the guy to come. Jesus is constantly struggling against these expectations. I love this one, John six fifteen. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay? They're not really listening to the kind of kingdom he's talking about. If they were, I don't think they would want him to be king so bad. Okay? He explains in the Sermon on the Mount what kind of kingdom he's talking about. But as we've seen with Peter, a lot of people who listen to Jesus aren't really listening if you know what I'm saying. They're just like, okay, this guy can do stuff. Look, okay, he he made water into wine. He he can calm a storm. This is the guy. This is the guy. Get the armor. Get quick quick. Go get the armor. And then the armor doesn't fit, Jesus. And so they kill him. They're dying for the Messiah. They're dying for him to come. And they think it's him, and he doesn't fit. Now, that's what we're talking about today. Why? How do they get so far off course? It was so deeply ingrained in their worldview that even Jesus' own apostles didn't get it, okay? A good example of this is Peter, who just after declaring that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, rebukes him, saying that the Messiah was never meant to suffer and die. You are the Messiah. What are you talking about? Why are you talking this way? What is your plan exactly? Uh, Jesus, apparently you haven't read the scriptures that talk about you because you're not supposed to walk around like a beggar, right? You're not supposed to talk to Samaritan women. Okay, I know where the, the Romans live. Let's get some chariots and let's go get them. Right? This is Peter's whole way of thinking. It would be funny if it weren't so sad. Right? They know who he is, and yet they, re, they totally refuse what he, what he himself is declaring he's going to do. They want him in their own way. Peter wants him his own way. The Israelites want them their own way. They don't want him as he comes and declares himself. Okay, what he declares he's going to do. How he declares he's going to do it. Even post-resurrection, this will be the last example because it's just too funny. Okay? He comes out of the grave. He, he performs some more miracles. He walks through a wall. And now they're really excited. right? No wall is going to keep this guy out. He's going to slay Romans like nobody's business. Acts 1, six. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Christ is about to ascend to heaven. He's about to leave, to sit down at the right hand of his father and to rule the cosmos, to send all of his power through the Holy Spirit to them. And they still want to know when they get the Lord over the Gentiles. Even now they don't get it. Robin Phillips wrote of Israel in his excellent book, Saints and Scoundrels. He said this, Grounded in the Messianic prophecies woven throughout the Old Testament, First century Jews looked forward to a climactic event that would establish the God of Israel as the sovereign God of the entire world. And they all wanted a piece of it. Okay, that's why they were arguing about who would be greater in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, when you're the emperor, can I be the Duke of the Northern Hemisphere? This this is what they wanted. They wanted power, right? Uh, I'm reading this good book about this awful group called the Nazis. And everybody wanted on Hitler's coattails. Everybody. And, and, and it worked out for them because homeless vagabonds became like ministers of finance. It's unbelievable. And, like, uh, closet homosexuals who were masochists became heads of the police departments. And it's just it's crazy. Everybody could see the direction things were going, and they wanted a part of it. And, and now Peter and these other guys aren't wicked like that. But it's the same kind of – people see a man rising to power. They all want to get in on it. They're willing to go with nothing for a while and follow him around because he's going to be the guy living in palaces of gold. And they all get to run around and do his bidding and rule over people. They just can't wait. They were all focused on worldliness, ambition, lust, and personal feuds. They couldn't get past their regional, national, or generational concerns. Okay, they were so focused on the promises in Scripture about dominion that they totally and completely ignored the promises about suffering and sacrifice. Right, they forgot all the parts in Isaiah about a suffering servant coming into the world. They disliked this idea of the Emmanuel who's going to drown all the, uh, the Gentiles in their own blood. The Jewish plans for the Messiah's kingdom involved the utter destruction of all non-Jews, all non-believers. Not their redemption, not their adoption into the family of God. The Israelites believed that their victory would look like Rome's. Now, here comes the hard question. As a Christian, given your relationship to the world and unbelievers, who are your enemies? And I'm not talking big, broad, sweeping ways like, oh, well, Islam. I mean your personal enemies. Who are they? Why? Why is that person your enemy? Think about your own life. Who are your enemies? Why are they your enemies? What does their defeat look like? Is your vision of their defeat consistent with the nature of the triune God? Does your vision of their defeat glorify God or make you feel better? Do you ever sit around thinking, I love the idea of hell because all those people I never want to see again get to go there? Just be in heaven forever with the people you like, with the other good people who who God so wisely chose. What does the defeat of our enemies look like as individuals, as families, as, as a church, as modern Christians? What does it look like? Does their defeat vindicate you or glorify the name of God? We need to let the Spirit of Christ search our, our hearts and show us our true feelings to steal a line from Star Wars. Search your feelings. Right, That's a line. Don't, don't do that. Have God search your feelings. And by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, show you who you who is it that are your enemies and why. And what does defeating them look like? Okay, we have to humbly consider the fact that God's people never know who their true enemy is. It's not impossible for us, but we walk around in our everyday lives not knowing who our real enemy is. The types and shadows of the Old Testament led to a lot of confusion and a lot of uncertainty about how the types and shadows would be fulfilled. There are physical aspects of the war that we are in, and there are spiritual aspects of the war that we are in. We fight the principalities and powers of the air, but these forces are concentrated in material aspects of our lives. Okay, this is important to understand this distinction. Throughout redemptive history, we see that God's spiritual war encompasses all of creation. It has a physical dimension and a spiritual dimension. Believers emphasize one over the other. In all of our missional errors, we think it's all spiritual, or we think it's all physical, and we get totally flummoxed in our minds about what it is. Okay, it doesn't matter who, I, like what I'm saying, and the clothes I'm wearing, and the things I'm doing, because it's spiritual. I've got Jesus in my heart, so I'm just going to go along my merry way and be like the world. Or we think it's all spiritual or or all physical, right, and not spiritual. Well, if I just never associate with the wrong kinds of people, nothing dirty will ever happen to me, right? And you can see all the missional errors of Christian Christian society throughout time are one or the other. As we've seen, I'm not going to belabor the point, public enemy in Jesus' day was Rome. Okay, this is why you see people reacting in funny ways. Herod thinks if he kills the Messiah, he's just a man. We just uh, eliminate the war before it ever gets going because he's just a man. But that's not true, right? right? Even, even at the end of the story, they kill him thinking that's, that's it. He's a man. Just put him to death and we'll be done with it. But there's a whole spiritual dimension behind it that they're not aware of. We often engage in the culture war without truly understanding the holy war between God and his enemies. The holy war is conducted with weapons of the spirit, with preaching and worship and prayer, communion and discipleship, in which God seeks to transform the whole man and the whole world. Okay? Adam didn't drop dead when he ate the apple, but he was spiritually dead. And then he later physically died. You see both things in the fall of Adam. All of our lives are about the physical warfare and the spiritual war, and you can't get confused about it being one simply or the other. Okay, Ephesians 6.12, we know this verse well. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay? However, culture is unavoidable. It is a byproduct of being a human. And we ought to care deeply about culture that is true, beautiful, and good, but not at the expense of the spiritual battle at the heart of it all. Okay? We have to keep the two things together. I'm going to quote Peter Lighthart again from his very excellent book, The Power in the Kingdom. A recognition of the primacy of the Holy War forces us to reassess our priorities. We have to ask again, what are the most important issues confronting American Christians? How are we to combat the evil that we see around us? In some cases, the battlegrounds of the Holy War overlap considerably with the battlegrounds of the culture war. Abortion, for example, is an evil that Christians should vigorously fight with every political and spiritual weapon that comes to hand. Frequently, however, a skirmish in the Holy War will seem irrelevant to those engaged in the culture war. If Holy War is primary, however, the activities of Holy War, sacraments, worship, Bible teaching, evangelism, prayer, take on a prominence as the chief priorities and weapons of American Christians. Before I was a Christian, I I, I had a saying that I thought was really funny I used to use about the Middle East. Let's just drop nukes on it and make the whole thing glass, right that much sand, just add heat and you got glass. You just eliminate the problem now, after I became a Christian, I used to say the same thing, but instead of you know American economic interests in oil as my reason, I have theological reasons. well, that's the son of Ishmael, and he's a wild donkey of a man, and I know the only way to really take care of a donkey is to drop a nuke on him and just make the whole thing glass okay because I brought all of that garbage with me from being a, a, a super conservative Republican hawk. I brought it all in and I sanctified it with me. But that's not the war that, right? We think, oh, that's the war. Let's go out there and let's fight for Christianity and family values and all this stuff. And it's, that's not really what we're fighting. That's not the war we're really fighting. But I'm not saying that we abandon all of that. Okay, here's a great example. Um, how often are you concerned about spreading democracy around the world? Are you more concerned about spreading democracy than the gospel or freedom in the Enlightenment sense or, goodness gracious, American exceptionalism? I know a lot of Christians who, that is, that's it. Let's go out there and make all these other nations like us and make them exceptional like us. And they're, they're well-meaning, but they're mis, misguided. Jonah saw the Ninevites as culturally foreign to himself and, therefore, as the enemy not the mission. Jonah's humanity and compassion were bent out of shape by nationalistic concerns. The real enemy in Nineveh was sin, and that is what God wanted Jonah to fight. Jonah wanted to eradicate the idol worshipers. God wanted to eradicate the idols, both in Nineveh and in Jonah. Jonah and the Israelites in Jesus' day forgot the promise to Abraham about being a blessing to the nations. The promise of the seed in Genesis 3.15 ceased to have any spiritual dimension at all. Israel believed it was a matter of how you wore your beard, how you washed up before meals. Israel thought it was a matter of who your dad was. Now, we don't, we don't do that, right? Except what do you think when you see a person covered in tattoos? Couldn't possibly be a Christian. This tattoo that I wear on my forearm here has taught me more about Christianity than a lot of things because there's so much assumptions that go into it. There's a reason I don't get any more of them, but it, it's re, it reveals a lot about the nature of the culture war. How do you feel when a Christian swears? Should they be swearing? No. But how does that make you what is your reaction when that happens? It's not a matter of like merely culture. The songs we sing, the books we read, the shows we watch. It's not merely about that. There's a spiritual dimension to all of this. But at the same time, when you are saved by Christ and you're walking by the light, there is that that culture that reflects that, should be good, true, and beautiful. Okay? It's not one or the other. It's both. Okay? Christ did not come to destroy Hellenism, which is Greek culture. That's what the Israelites really wanted. Please get rid of all this Greekness that's sneaked in here. And yet, I love it, John says, in the beginning was the word, which is a Greek, Greek philosophical idea down to the bones. We mock the Israelites, especially the teachers and apostles, for not getting it. Okay? They didn't get what was going on. And what we really have to ask is, do we? What is the fight we're fighting? What does it look like? Who is it against? Does it ever include yourself? Right? It, should you turn to a mirror and look at it with the critical eye you're looking at the world? Should you look at the scriptures with the same critical eye about the promises of God and what they mean for you? Right? We get all disheveled. It's either all internal here and I'm not who I, God says I am or it's all out there and it has nothing to do with me. Okay, the war in which we are engaged... Is summed up well at the end of this, this section we had read for us this morning. Luke 1, 78 through 79 says this. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And we love it. That's about us. Yet what were we before God made us his own? Right? We were his enemies, and then he made us his friends and made these promises true for us. And so now we forget the fact that this is also about his enemies. Those who sit in darkness, we also were those who sat in darkness, and we were freed from that into the kingdom of light. And now we think this just is just talking about us. Isn't it great? God delivered us. Everything's great. That world out there, he's just going to destroy it. It's wicked. But the shadow of death is an echo of mankind. It's mankind. We all sit under the shadow of death. These are promises for humanity in Christ. It echoes Psalm 23, which is about God's generosity and protection and provision, cultural engagement with the day-to-day cares of his people, what they wear, what they eat, what they read, how they pray, their ethics and their work. Those who sit in darkness have seen a great light. And we go out into the light and we forget all about the darkness. We just curse it. We forget all about all those other people that we knew in the dark. I made the mistake when I became a Christian, I didn't. I, I had ejected all the friends that I had. And for a time, it was necessary. But I ejected them to the point now that I'm not their friend. And I was kind of glad to be rid of them. Is that why I was saved? Is that why I was saved? So I could hit the eject button, forget about those fools in the dark? The war in which we are engaged in is not what we often think it is because Jesus came to defeat the real enemies, the true enemies, Satan, sin, and death. What did the Father send Jesus into the world to do? Hebrews two fourteen through 15 says that through death, Jesus came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, because the devil led mankind into the fear of death and subjection to lifelong slavery. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Paul says in Romans 6.23 that the wage of sin is death. And Romans 2.5 says that the unbelieving, unregenerate person is storing up by their hard and impertinent heart wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The nature of the fight is different in light of this. It's not about you being comfortable. Did Christ save you so you would be comfortable? And happy? Or is it about light and darkness? It's about those in the bondage of sin, those who are being destroyed all day long, every day of the week, every month of the year, every year of their life by Satan. The true enemies of God, sin, Satan, and death, are our true enemies. Now, this final point here, I'm going I'm to work right into the conclusion. I'm only going to talk about three ways that Jesus fights this battle that God fights this battle. Three examples. There's more, but this is three that I want all of us to think very hard about. There are, um, the first is found in the confrontation between Jesus and, the Satan, and Satan in Matthew chapter 4. Right? What happens? He goes without eating for 40 days and then the most ironic verse in the whole Bible, he's hungry. <laughs> yes, I bet he is hungry. And then Satan comes and says, if you're Messiah, make these stones into bread. And what does Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father. Okay, the application of this is obvious. Satan is coming to to Jesus and he's lying. He's lying about who Jesus is. He's lying about the world that God made. He's lying about what the Father said. And Jesus fights it with the truth. Now, sitting in a dark room chasing clickbait online is not walking in the light. Okay, you're not fighting the lies if you're sitting there allowing that to go on. Two men at the altar do not a marriage make. Okay, This is where the culture war and the holy war come right together. That's a lie. That man and that man at an altar do not make a marriage. Sorry. It's not true. A man born with the genitalia of a man cannot be a woman. I mean, I can't believe we live in a world that we have to say that, but that just goes to show you how dark it is. That's not a, a woman. That's a man. And you have to be careful where you say that, right? A prisoner in a cell cannot snuff out the sun by scrawling darkness on the prison wall. Darkness. Right? There's still light outside, buddy. You didn't kill it. Jesus fights temptation in the lives of Satan with God's word, the sword of truth. Now, the second example I'd like to mention is Stephen. Because he imitates his Lord perfectly. He knew who the real enemy was. Acts 7, verses 58 through 60. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Saul is overseeing the stoning of Stephen. And Stephen knows the enemies aren't the Jews holding the stones, but Satan holding the Jews. How Satan loves to see God's image bearers destroying one another because it destroys in them the image of God. But Stephen is in Christ, and he won't fight that way. He doesn't pick up stones and start hurling them back. He doesn't pull out a sword like Peter and starts chopping off ears. And again, what? Peter doesn't know how to use the sword, right? It's not how it's used. Peter. Stephen doesn't fight that way. Stephen cries out that God would forgive them. Stephen did not want vengeance, but he wanted God to free them from their sin, free them from Satan, free them from this love of death that they have. In the very next chapter of Acts, just before Saul is converted into Paul, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Now, it wasn't Jesus who was stoned, it was Stephen. But Stephen was alive in Christ. Christ took it personally because Stephen is part of his bride, the flesh of his flesh and the bone of his bone. Stephen's prayer for his enemies in the name of Jesus was heard and heeded. Stephen's prayer was answered and his murderer was forgiven. Stephen defeated Saul by praying for his salvation. So we confront lies with the truth. And we overcome our enemies by praying for them. That changes things. That changes a lot. That person who cuts you off on the freeway. right? Again, your idiot brother-in-law. We all have one. Going back to the story at the very beginning, I can't even imagine who Jesus would show up with just to teach me a lesson about how much I don't really love him. Who are our enemies? Do we, we pray for them? Stephen is being stoned to death, and he's praying that they would be delivered from Satan because he gets who the enemy is. Christ said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. There's two kinds of people in this world, those who serve God and those who serve Satan. Both are bondservants clinging to a master, and without the grace of God, which would you be a part of? We think we so easily forget. We think it's us versus them. But mankind fell. You're on the same side as the porn stars and the abortionists, because you're all you were all in Adam, darkened in your minds, loving sin, loving death, serving the the fallen angel. And you think now because you were freed from living that kind of life that you're just totally cut off from those people now. Well, that's them over there, and God's going to send them to hell. Thank goodness I won't have to see them again. And I'm going to be over here with the family of God living it up and eating steak for their eternity. You're on the same side as the porn stars and the abortionists. Do you think when those, those porn stars were little girls, that's what they wanted to do with their lives? I mean, Hillary Clinton. Let's go there. Because she is a wicked woman. Now, what if she becomes president? What would defeat of her look like? Assassination? Or her becoming a wise, upright ruler? Wouldn't that teach us something? I think most Christians who are conservatives would gnash their teeth at that idea. But that's just the kind of th- thing God would do, wouldn't he? Make Hillary, Not only make her president, but make her wise and upstanding. She puts away her husband. I mean... For, you know, for sexual infidelity and loves Jesus and take I mean, could you imagine if that happened to us? We never think that the defeat of Barack Obama is him being wise and upright. right We think get rid of them, get the non-believers out of here because they have nothing to do with all this happiness and light that we're sharing with Jesus all by ourselves. We serve God and are his bond servants while those who do not serve Satan and are his bondservants. And without the grace of God, which would we be a part of? You, you understand Satan. You understand sin. You understand death all too well. And so why isn't your heart breaking for those still sitting in bondage, still sitting in darkness? The final strategy in this war is seen in the Godhead himself, from which all the rest of our, his strategies flow. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God extended love and sacrificial service to those who didn't deserve it, who didn't want it, and didn't understand it. And that's you. That's all of you. While you were still darkened in your understanding, when you were still far from God and hated him, he loved you. And so how do we go and fight our enemies? By loving them even though they don't love us, even though they don't want anything to do with us. He loved them, sacrificially serving their needs. That changes everything. Who are your enemies? Why are they your enemy? Are you striking out at them or are you striking at their shepherd? Are you fighting lies and temptations with the word of truth? Are you preaching to yourself as you come up against the lies of the world and the accusations of Satan in your own life? Are you standing in judgment over the sins of your spouse, your children, your friends, your co-workers, your family members? If Stephen didn't think the men stoning him were his real enemies, why do you think the guy cutting you off on the freeway is? Why do you think your wife is, your children, your son-in-law? Is your idol yourself? Are you defending it with all the judgmental ire that you can muster up? Stephen didn't hold a grudge against the Jews who didn't know what they were doing while committing murder. So why do you hold a grudge against your son-in-law who is trapped in the dark? Stephen prayed for the men murdering him because he, as a redeemed sinner, understood where they were coming from. This is I love this. I I have a friend who said of his father, I never felt like he was against me. He always understood. He said, son, our enemy is Satan, sin, and death, and we're going to fight that together using the power of Jesus Christ. I don't parent that way. I don't minister that way. Why are you doing this? What is wrong with you? What is the problem with you? We say to our children, our spouses, our coworkers, well, what's wrong with them is they're trapped in darkness, and they have a master, and they serve him. And the, and the culture of the slaves doesn't matter as much as who the slave master is. And so if we're going to fight, let's fight with love. Let's fight with sacrifice. Let's fight with prayer. Let's fight with the, the word of truth. Let's stand up and say, I'm counted in the Lord's army, and I fight like he fights. He fights. So what can I do? How can I help? How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I show compassion to you? Okay, this is the Christmas story. Okay, we, all, we all want to put the lights away. We want to put the tree out in the, in the backyard and burn it or let the kids do whatever the kids do with it out there. We want to move on. But the Christmas story goes on because there are still people waiting in darkness. They're still waiting for the angels to come and the shepherds and the wise men. They're waiting for the epiphany. Who is this person? Why am I so empty? What is the purpose of my life? Well, a light has dawned, and we've seen it. So why are we acting as if we don't understand the grace of it all, the goodness of it all? What can I do? How can I help? How can I love you? How can I serve you? This is fighting the war. This is manning the machine gun of sacrificial love, right? Even when I, I said that earlier, everyone thinks, okay, a machine gun, that's very – I love that picture, though, from the 70s where the, the, all the soldiers standing with a rifle and that hippie comes up and puts the flower in the, in the gun. Now, I'm, I'm not a nonviolent pacifist at all, but I love that image. Kill them with kindness. Kill them with love. Destroy their world with joy. That's the Christmas story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the coming of your Son into the world, for he is truly God with us. And he has made you our Father. He's given your Spirit to us to fill us with all the fullness of God. To go into the world, Father, with that fullness and pour it into the hearts and into the minds and into the lives of everyone we meet. Father, teach us what it truly means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Teach us to love you, Father, with all our heart, mind, body, and strength and cling to you with all of our strength to go into this world as your soldiers and fight with love and fight with sacrifice and fight with joy. Strengthen us, Father. Give us your grace. And we thank you for this Christmas day, this last day, this epiphany, this season, the Sabbath rest that you've given us, Father. And let us rest for the fight. And amen.